0: First and second Samuel were probably both written pretty close to 3,000 years ago, sometime, maybe a hundred years after the actual events occurred. We don't know who wrote them, whether it really was Samuel, probably not. But the subject is the prophet Samuel and the first of the two kings of Israel when they started being a monarchy after that period of judges was done. It was written in Hebrew. I can't tell you about the entire life of Saul today, but I want to get give the flavor of it. And so we're going to go back to about 1065 BC or so, and we will... Fast forward through the chapters about the prophet Samuel and how he got started. You remember his mother, Hannah, she was childless and prayed for a son and the Lord gave her Samuel and he was raised in the temple by the old high priest whose name was Eli. But now Samuel is old and the period of the judges is just coming to a close and the people have looked around at the neighboring nations and how they all have kings, and they want one too. And so here we are in 1 Samuel 8. All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, You're old, and your sons don't follow your ways. And that was true. His sons weren't even honest, ethical men, and so they weren't suitable to follow in his footsteps Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. And this displeased Samuel because this did not seem to be at the time God's best for them. In fact, when he went to the Lord about this, the Lord said, listen to all the people are saying, it's not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. The Lord had originally envisioned a theocracy, you know, and it was like that when Moses was their head, God as their king with someone that he communicates with, who is not really a worldly, earthly king, but a religious leader, but now they're wanting a king. They've rejected me as their king, as they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're doing to you. Listen to them, but warn them solemnly. In other words, tell them the truth about what it's really going to be like when you hand absolute power over to one person. And we know absolute power corrupts absolutely. You've heard that before. Our own nation tried to turn George Washington into a king and he knew that wasn't a good idea and he refused it and that's why he became our first president, you know. But uh, Samuel stood before the people and he said, now your taxes are going to go up and he's going to take all your best and brightest to serve him and you're going to cry out for relief and the Lord won't answer you in that day, but the people refused to listen. They said, no, 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 we want a king. We want to be like all the other nations, but the take-home message there from the Lord was what he said in 1 Samuel 8, 7, they've rejected me, that I shouldn't be a king over them, but he knew it was going to be like that, right? Because if you go back to the book, of Genesis at the very end of the life of Israel himself, Jacob, when he was on his deathbed and he was prophesying over each one of his kids, when he came to Judah, he said that there would be a king from Judah. And he was talking about the Messiah. So God's plan was, okay, I'll let them ask for a king and I'll establish a dynasty. And then I myself, through the Messiah will come through that dynasty, and I'll still be their king. And so it all was going to come full circle, but we have to go through this process. And so you get to 1 Samuel 9, and remember, we're supposed to be focusing now on the life of the first king, who was Saul, and we read there was a Benjamite, a man of standing whose name was Kish, son of Abiel. The son of Zeror, the son of Becareth, the son of Aphiah of Benjamin, Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as can be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than everyone else. <clears throat> well, he was a very shy and unassuming man. You talk about somebody who didn't think too much of himself, kind of struggled maybe with a self esteem problem, and one day, his father lost a couple of donkeys. So in 1 Samuel 9, we read that Kish said to his son Saul, take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. And so he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and around the area of Shalisha and they didn't find them. Then they went on through another town. The donkeys weren't there. They passed through the territory of Benjamin and they did not find them. So... Finally, Saul starts thinking, you know, he says to his servant, we ought to go back. My father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. The donkeys never were found by Saul and his servant. They turned up somewhere else and ended up being back at the house ahead of Saul. But the servant, before they knew what happened to the donkeys, the servant said, hey, you know there's a prophet around here. He's highly respected and everything he says comes true. Of course, he was speaking of Samuel, the old man. Let's go there now. Maybe he'll tell us what way to take. And then Saul's going, oh, I don't know if we've got anything to pay him. And then the servant says, oh yeah, I got a silver coin here, a third of a shekel. And so they decided that they would go and ask the prophet. And so they came to Samuel's house And uh, and it turns out the Lord had all this under control and he had spoken to Samuel ahead of time and he had said, about this time tomorrow, I'm going to send you a man from the land of Benjamin. You see how God works? Kish just thinks it's another ordinary day, but oops, oh no, the donkeys got out. Where are they? And yet the Lord is using all these circumstances to bring about his will. And so... The Lord says to Samuel, about this time tomorrow, I'm going to send you a man from Benjamin, anoint him ruler over my people, and he's going to deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people and their cry has reached me. So sure enough, they come up to Samuel. They don't even know who he is. And they say to him, would you please tell us where the seer's house is? Another word they used for prophet, seer. Samuel says, I'm the seer. Go on up ahead of me to the high place, for today you're going to eat with me, and in the morning I'll send you on your way and tell you all that's in your heart. Oh, and by the way, as for those donkeys you lost three days ago, don't worry about them, they've been found. And then he says the strangest thing to this tall, handsome, really shy, unassuming man. He says, and to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and your whole family line? What What does that mean? And so the next day, Samuel says to Saul, "Give us a little privacy here. Would you send your servant on ahead? You stay for a while. I'm going to give you a message from God. And then he takes out a flask of oil and you can see here the artist is aware of how tall Saul was. You see how Saul has had to lean way over to get down there where Samuel and the rest of the population were. And he takes a flask of oil and he pours it on Saul's head and he kisses him and he says, hasn't the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When you leave me today, you're going to meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah on the border of Benjamin. And they'll say to you, the donkeys you set out to look for have been found. And now your father has stopped thinking about them and he's worried about you. And then you go on with them and reach the great tree of Tabor and three young men are going up to worship God at Bethel and you meet them there and one's carrying three goats, another bread, another a skin of wine. And anyway, he sets him all up for this coronation. And so that occurs and he's actually installed as king in a private way, not before the entire nation. And then he is given a really, really important instruction from Samuel. Samuel says to this deer-in-the-headlights shy guy who never saw this coming and is in utter awe, After that, you'll go to Gibeah of God, where there's a Philistine outpost. And as you approach the town, you'll meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high places with lyres, timbrels, pipes, and harps being played before them and they will be prophesying and the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully on you and you'll prophesy with them and you'll be changed into a different person. So the Lord knew what he was doing, even though he chose someone who didn't like to be in front of people and who was very modest and shy and unassuming. He was going to give this man the right temperament and the right personality to be a leader over everyone. And he says, once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, God is with you. And then comes the most important part of this section of our story. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal, and I'll surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. You know that we're going to have a worship time because of this important day where we're starting a new form of government and we have a monarchy. And he says, you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. And so we'll skip a little and move ahead, but they do have a formal coronation. They call out the whole nation of Israel and in a very careful and organized way, They have heads of each of the 12 tribes and then they select Benjamin and then they select the family within Benjamin and then they select Kish's family and finally they bring forward Saul and everybody's going, who, what, where even is he? And they couldn't even find him when it was time for the public coronation because he was shy. He had gone and hidden himself amidst the stuff. So immediately some of the people were happy to follow him because they'd been praying for a king all this time, and they trusted Samuel, but some were standing back going, yeah, well, how can this guy do anything to save us? He's too shy to even say his name in public for crying out loud. So that brings us up through the 10th chapter of 1 Samuel, and we get to 1 Samuel 11, and the first test comes along. Strangely, you would think, you know, that Saul would have been carried on the shoulders of some of the most important men of the entire nation, and, and they would have immediately started construction on some big palace, and they would have moved him to the capital city, which there really wasn't the capital city at that time. But it wasn't like that. They have this coronation, and he just goes home. And he's been a farmer, so he's getting up every day and he's going out in the field with a plow, the guy that they have designated king. And then you get to 1 Samuel 11 and there's a war with their enemies, the Ammonites, who I've told you about before, descendants of Lot from his incestuous relationship with one of his daughters. They were bitter enemies of Israel. So Nahash the Ammonite, goes up and besieges Jabesh Gilead. So where the red arrow is, this is the city that suddenly is besieged just out of the clear blue by one of the enemies of Israel. And get this, the men of Jabesh are frightened, of course, and so they want to make peace. And they say, please make a treaty with us. We'll be subject to you. You know, we'll do whatever you say, please. We don't want to fight. And Nahash the Ammonite replies, I'll make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. Yeah, okay, we'll take you as servants. We won't fight you. But all of your uh, fighting men are going to have to line up on that day. We're going to gouge out the right eye of every one of them. That's the cost. And so the elders of Jabesh, meek as they are, they say, give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. And if nobody comes to rescue us, we'll surrender to you. Well, when word reaches Saul, the new king, and he gets these reported terms and he sees all the people weeping aloud, he becomes so angry that the Spirit of God comes powerfully upon him and he burns with anger and he takes a pair of oxen and he cuts those oxen up into pieces and he sends those pieces throughout Israel and he says, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who doesn't follow Saul and Samuel. In other words, it is a military draft and you'd better report for duty because we're going to war. I'm not having this. So you see, that man who was so shy that at his own coronation he hid himself in the stuff. The Lord really did change his heart, and he was going to be an effective leader. And the terror of the Lord fell on all the people, and they came out as one. And Saul musters them at Bezek. Anyway, bottom line, you can probably see this coming. They have a marvelous victory against the people of Ammon. And... Uh, It says that they slaughtered them until the heat of the day. They got up early that morning with that huge group of people that they had put together, which was uh, 300,000 and those of Judah, 30,000. Can you imagine 330,000 people? Wow. And so they break into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughter them for hours and those that survive are scattered so no two of them are left together. All right, well, wow. But then comes another military campaign, and this time it's war with the Philistines, and the Philistines have come clear to one of their towns called Gilgal, and it's really starting to scare the people a lot. The Philistines assemble to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 600 charioteers and soldiers, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, and they go up and camp at Michmash, east of Bethaven. And when the Israelites see that their situation is critical and that their army's hard pressed, they hide in the caves and the thickets and among the rocks and in the pits and cisterns. All right. Well, this is the occasion where Saul is to go to Gilgal and let's go back and see what was that? What was that instruction again? Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. That's what Samuel had said. And I'll come down to sacrifice burn offerings and fellowship offerings, that You have to wait a week until you're told what to do. Wait for me, and I'll tell you what to do. And so now, even though they've had this great military victory against the Ammonites, and nobody got their eye gouged out, now they're really scared of the Philistines. And the men are pressuring him, and the Philistines are out there, and he's getting worried, and it's been a week, and there's no Samuel. You know, the kind of guy that's always looking at his watch? Oh, boy. You know, tapping his foot and wondering where on earth he is and pacing up and down. That's how it got to be for Saul, and he was just so nervous. So, unfortunately, here we go. This is one of the most important things I wanted to tell you. Saul remains at Gilgal. All the troops are quaking with fear. He waits seven days, the time set by Samuel. Samuel doesn't come to Gilgal, and Saul's men begin to scatter. That'll really scare you when you're the general and people are AWOL. And so he says, bring me the burn offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burn offering. Oh, no. We have a brand new monarch. The Lord has installed him. The Lord's given him victory. The Lord's given him a new heart. And the Lord has given him explicit instructions from a prophet about exactly what to do. And he's gotten nervous and impatient and he's not gonna do it, oh no. And so Saul offers up the burnt offering. Just as he finishes making the offering, Samuel arrives and Saul goes out to greet him. Maybe a little sheepish. Hello, Samuel, how are you doing? Trying to act like everything's normal. And here's the most important, probably phrase of the entire chapter, 1 Samuel 13. What have you done? And that was a rhetorical question because Samuel could clearly see what he had done. He didn't need someone to say, well, actually, King Saul went ahead and offered the sacrifice that only priests are allowed to do, disobeying the commandment of the Lord. And so Saul starts making excuses. Would you look at this? He's passing the blame off to everyone. Saul says, when I saw the men were scattering, well, it's the soldier's fault. They ran off. What was I supposed to do? And you didn't come at the set time. Well, it's kind of your fault too, Samuel, because you said, wait seven days. And I did wait seven days, and there wasn't a sign of you anywhere. And the Philistines were assembling at Mi'kmash. Well, really, it's the enemy's fault too, because they are coming against us, and what are we going to do? And I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I haven't sought the Lord's favor. Really, it's kind of the Lord's fault, too, because he set up a system where I don't think he would help me if I didn't ask him first. So what choice did I have? I felt compelled. So here's a man who is caught in direct disobedience, which another word for that is rebellion, you know, and all he can do is pass the buck. Reminds me of Genesis 3. When the Lord comes and talks to Adam and Eve, and Adam says, well, the woman, and woman says, well, the serpent, wasn't my fault. I really didn't have any choice in this. It's just the way it all happened. But Saul says, you've done a foolish thing. You haven't kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Well, I don't know. He kind of did, didn't he? I mean, they said to wait a week. He waited a week. This was an unforeseen circumstance, wasn't it? Mm. You had your orders. Wait for Samuel. Samuel will offer the sacrifice. And you made a conscious decision to do something different. Foolish. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Oh, but God knew this was going to go this way. That's why he said back in that prophecy in Genesis that I mentioned that the monarchy and the Messiah was going to come through the tribe of Judah. Saul's the tribe of Benjamin. He was the rightful first anointed king of Israel, but oh no, he's been rejected. Now your kingdom won't endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. Well, you know that's going to be David and he's the subject of next week because you haven't kept the Lord's command. So keep that disobedience in mind and we'll fast forward 15 years. You know, he had a 40-year reign and a lot of stuff happened in that time that we don't have time to talk about. But let's go forward to about maybe 1050 and Samuel's still in contact with Saul and Saul's still king. Nothing really tragic has happened so far and he does have strong sons and He is reigning over the whole nation. Samuel says to Saul, I'm the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says, all punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Well, this is another big can of worms. And there are so many interesting things in scripture that happened generations ago. Why are we going to do the harvesting now? Hard thing to go through, but we'll just take it at face value and move on. Now go and attack the Amalekites, and here's your instructions. I hope you're listening, Saul. Totally destroy all. Don't spare them. Put to death the men and the women, the children and the infants, cattle and sheep, camel and donkeys, all do it all. So we get to 1 Samuel 15, and Samuel puts together an army and musters them at lamb, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. That's a big army. And Saul goes to the city of Amalek and he sets an ambush in the ravine. He's even careful to say to the descendants of Moses' father-in-law that were friendly with Israel, the Kenites go away and leave the Amalekites so that I don't destroy you along with them because you showed kindness to the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away. And then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Hevila to Shur near the eastern border of Egypt. And he took the king alive. Oh, no, not again. Rats. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag. Oh, and that if that wasn't enough, and the best of the sheep and the cattle and the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. Oh, man, you just don't listen, do you? What was it? Totally destroy all. And what does he do? Everything that was good, he saved. These, they were unwilling to destroy completely. Halfway, you mean kind of like Maybe today's Christianity where you see people who are kind of doing what God wants them to do and there's a lot of good things about the church, but they're not really totally following after the Lord like they're supposed to. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, Lord bless you, I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Oh no, not only is he disobedient, he's lying to himself, he's blind as a bat. Samuel says, and this is a famous, famous question in Scripture: "What is this then of the bleeding of the sheep in my ears? Oh, you did everything you were supposed to do. Why am I hearing sheep and cattle? Tom and I have cattle, and sometimes we take a walk, and instead of mooing, they'll low. It's very pleasant. They'll just go, Rrr. you know how they do. Get real close to them, it's just soft." Rrr. But this time, that all of that, uh, bah, all of that's a symbol of disobedience and rebellion. What is this lowing of the cattle that I hear? And so Saul answers, and get this, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. Here he goes again, 15 years later, a pronouncement that he will not continue with his dynasty, and he hadn't learned a blessed thing. He says, the soldiers brought them from the, well, it's the soldiers' fault. They spared the rest of the sheep and the cattle, but it was because we're going to sacrifice those to the Lord, but we totally destroyed the rest. And Samuel says to Saul, enough, time out, shut it off. I don't want to hear any more from you. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul said. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, didn't you become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord appointed you king over Israel and he sent you on a mission. He told you what to do. Why didn't you obey? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? And the king had the gall to respond like this. Instead of saying, dear Lord, have mercy, I have sinned. And falling on his face in contrition, He argues, he has the goal to argue, but I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle. You see, he lies and he passes the book and he will not see that he's not doing what God has told him to do. I wonder if that's like us today. As we justify falling and creeping into sin and rebellion, the Bible says one thing, and we say, Well, yeah, we're kind of pretty much, pretty much mostly doing that. Yeah, no, we're fine. We're not sinning. We're okay. The best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Now, here is our cornerstone scripture for today. This is Samuel's reply Oh, that we would take it to heart. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams, for rebellion is like the sin of divination. In the past, sometimes when my kids would kind of go off track and I would see some rebellion, I would show them this scripture and say, can you imagine sitting in a dark room with tarot cards or a Ouija board trying to conjure up evil spirits. That sounds pretty nasty to me. But this scripture says that disobedience is like that. It's that bad. It's like divination. It's like dabbling in the occult. And arrogance like the evil of idolatry. You know, arrogance, pride, all be my own God. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, He's rejected you as king. Oh, Saul's so upset. Samuel starts to walk off and he grabs his robe and it tears. And Saul says, The Lord has, or Samuel says, The Lord has torn the kingdom away from you. You know, it was like the ripping of his coat was a symbol. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. David, who we'll talk about next week. He who is the glory of Israel doesn't lie or change his mind, for he's not a human being that he should change his mind. And then he says, bring me, Agag. And so they bring the king of the Amalekites, and he's in chains, and he's thinking, maybe the evil of war has passed, and they're going to spare my life. Yay, it's going to be okay. But Samuel said to King Agag, As your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. He had to do the heavy lifting because Saul did not have a heart to obey the Lord. And then Saul left for Ramah and he went and Samuel left. And and until the day that Samuel died, he didn't see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And here's the saddest sentence. The Lord regretted that he'd made Saul king over Israel. Wow. All right, so people disobey God because they're scared or because they're impatient or because they just want something or because they're arrogant. You know, maybe you're scared to leave an abuser or you're scared to call child protective services to take care of a child or you're scared that if you don't listen to gossip, you won't be as popular, or maybe you're scared to speak up for Christ or tell the truth in court, or maybe you're just scared to ask your boss for Sundays off at work, or maybe it's just desire. Maybe you tell yourself, I don't think living together is that bad, or I don't think that I drink that much, or I don't think that there's really anything wrong with nicotine or I don't think that this little, this little uh, tax problem that I have is that big of a deal, you know, where I cut corners and don't exactly report everything. I know the Bible talks about modesty or gossip or bitterness or unforgiveness or anger, but I'm okay because that's just what Sam's soul did. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. James said, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and don't do what I tell you? In fact, he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Now, wait a minute. I thought we were saved by the blood of Christ, not by doing the will of the Father. Oh, but if the blood of Christ has covered us and we've received that in faith, that's gonna be evidenced by a life of obedience, isn't it? People who have been washed in the blood live a life that is transformed. It's shown by their actions. John said, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love, obedience, And his commands are not burdensome. And so the bottom line is, if we're people of faith, we've got to quit making excuses for our sin. And we've got to obey the word. It destroys Saul's legacy. And disobedience can destroy ours too. If this podcast has been a blessing to you, please pass it along.